Well, we return to the book of Isaiah. We find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 14, starting at verse 28 this morning. At verse 28 in chapter 14, there's a shift in what Isaiah has been working on, and he shifts from oracles about these giant nations that were threatening Israel. Now he shifts to oracles having to do with neighboring nations to whom Israel, or Judah rather, may have been tempted to turn for help against Assyria. Now, if that's confusing at all, I think it'll get clearer as we go. When we get into verse 28, the main thing you're meant to note and see to understand the passage in front of us is what's going on historically at this time. So let's start and just read verse 28. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning at verse 28. In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Let's pause on verse 28 for just a minute. Our kids used to go to school at Carolina Christian School out in Locust, and uh, on the way to one of their classrooms, I can't remember which one, maybe both of them at different times, the hall was covered with framed pictures of all of our U.S. presidents throughout history. And so whenever we would walk to their class for any reason, we would pass these pictures. And I I always like that. I like um, presidential history and stuff. I'm no expert in it by any means, but uh, I would look at all those men and just think, man, what kind of person thinks that they could be the president of the United States of America, much less gets elected to actually do that job. And you see those faces pass by, and you know, there's been varying degrees of success in the office of the presidency, and we probably all have different opinions on who's been the very best presidents and who's been the very worst. Well, whoever you may think was the very worst president we've ever had, they were nothing in comparison to King Ahaz. We will read just a little bit about King Ahaz, and you will be so grateful for every president that God has ever put in charge of our nation. We need to understand a little bit about King Ahaz to understand the verses that are to come. Now, understand, not all of us are history buffs. This isn't probably, on the front end, you may not all be invigorated by the fact that we're going to learn about King Ahaz, but hang with me. I think you will find it interesting, but more than that, understanding this history is going to help you receive the main point of this passage, which will be very relevant to you. So hang with me through a little bit of history. We need to get to know King Ahaz, and we'll start in 2 Kings chapter 16. This is not going to be projected, so you can flip there and follow along in your Bibles and listen. I'm just going to read a little bit of the history of King Ahaz. We'll start in 2 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 5. There's going to be a lot of historical names and places. You don't need to understand every detail about those to get the point. Okay. This just picks up in the flow of history of Judah and, and, and their kings. And right now we're in the reign of Ahaz. It says, Then Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezan, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. Okay, so if I've already lost you, tune back in here, because now we're getting more to the point. So Ahaz, he's under siege by these foreign powers. Verse 7, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser. I should have definitely looked up pronunciations. He sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So Assyria is this big threat against God's people. This is a pagan 
nation that worshipped false gods. Here King Ahaz of Judah is sending a message to this king. Here's what it says. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of, of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So this king of Judah, God's people, instead of turning to God for help in this time of need, he turns to the king of Assyria, this pagan god this, who's really a threat to God's people, this uh, king who relies on and worships false gods. King Ahaz actually turned to him for a treaty, for protection, to make an alliance with him. It says, Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So he's taking things out of the, of the temple to give to the king of Assyria, trying to say, help me. And the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it. That's a, a place in Syria, one of the people attacking Judah, carrying his people captive to Kerr, and he killed Reason. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. This was an idolatrous altar to a false god. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. So King Ahaz sought protection from this pagan king rather than turning to the Lord. And then he went to meet the pagan king, and he saw his idolatrous altar, and he thought, that looks really cool. I'd like to have one of those back in Judah. And he sent back to the priest that was supposed to be serving the one true God, the Lord, and had him build this replica of this pagan altar. And then he came back to town to worship false gods on this altar rather than worshiping the true God as he was supposed to. Now, we'll jump from there for a little more detail into Second Chronicles chapter 28. You guys are doing great. You're hanging with me really well. We'll just read a little bit from Second Chronicles in chapter 28. This is telling the same history, but from a slightly more detailed perspective. So, verse 16 of Second Chronicles 28. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines had made raids on the cities in the Shephelah and the Negeb of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, a bunch of other names that you guys won't remember and I won't pronounce correctly, so I'm just going to kind of breeze over those. Verse 19, For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz king of Israel, for he made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So that's the headline for King Ahaz. That, that would have been on his tombstone when he died. This king had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So the king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. King Ahaz's alliance with Assyria only led to trouble for Judah. It didn't ultimately help them. As you would guess, looking back with historical hindsight, obviously that was a bad move. But we read on in verse 22, and here's where we'll, we'll land in this history of King Ahaz. It says, In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. So when King Ahaz was under threat and he was distressed, that drove him further away from the Lord. He became even more faithless to the Lord and led Israel, or Judah into even more trouble. 
And then there it outlines even more just how idolatrous he became. He was worshiping false gods everywhere throughout the land. He was a terrible king. Now, back to Isaiah. We know, looking back at that history, we're reminded that ancient Israel had no separation of church and state. These ancient nations didn't have any notion of separation of church and state. So when you ally yourself with a nation, you are, in essence, trusting in that nation's gods. You're saying, well, your gods seem stronger than our God seems. I'm feeling vulnerable trusting in our God, so I'm going to trust you and your gods. And that's what King Ahaz had done. He had made that a, a, a firm policy of his administration. It was really bad. Now, after he died, his son Hezekiah came into power, and Hezekiah was a good king. Hezekiah led the nation back to trust in the one true God. And this was the transition that's covered there in verse 28 in Isaiah 14. All that history is contained in those simple words, in the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. The oracle we're about to read came during this huge shift in Judah's foreign policy. Because Hezekiah was not going to ally himself with the king of Assyria. If you read back there in Second Chronicles sometime, maybe for homework this week, you'll see he made all kinds of great reforms, bringing God's people back to trust in the one true God, cleansing all the idolatrous altars out of the country. He got things back on track really well. So that's what's going on. Here's the oracle, the message God gave to Isaiah at that time in, in Judah's history. Verse 29. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. Obviously, we need to stop for just a minute and understand what in the world. So here again, just a little bit more history. Philistia is basically the the city-states where the Philistines lived. This was the Philistines. And you remember the Philistines from famous biblical stories. They're the ones that killed Samson. Uh, That's, you know, David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. The Philistines had been a thorn in, in God's people's side for a long time, often in conflict, often at war. So this oracle is turning to this neighboring nation, this neighboring nation of Philistia. Ahaz's death seemed to have signaled to Philistia a reason to rejoice. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, is saying, not so fast, don't celebrate just yet, put the tambourines and streamers away. You may think that the rod that struck you is broken, but then it goes into, on the contrary, all this stuff about serpents. From the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying a flying, fiery serpent. Now, he doesn't elaborate on what, what he's talking about exactly. We can, we can figure out probably what he's referring to here. I think the original audience would have been crystal clear exactly what he meant, and it's a little more obscure for us. Commentators have some different ideas of who exactly is the rod that was broken, who exactly is the serpent, who's the adder, who's the flying, fiery serpent. And there's different ways to approach that question um, is, is, some of these, is some of this referring to Ahaz, some of it referring to Hezekiah, some of it referring all the way forward to the Messiah? Is some of this referring to Assyria? Is some of it referring to Babylon? I'm not going to get too deep into trying to untangle all that. 
it doesn't seem to be terribly important because the passage moves on from it. So I think the bottom line that we can understand from this verse is that while Philistia thought things were going to be much better for them now that King Ahaz had died, things were actually going to get much more dangerous for them. So with that in mind, let's read on into verse 30. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. So picture starting to sharpen up a little bit. Philistia is an enemy of Judah. Something about King Ahaz's death made them initially think they were going to get some relief from danger, but it actually was going to introduce them into a more dangerous situation. And then in contrast to that, the beginning of verse 30 seems to refer back to God's people. The peace that God's people enjoy is often pictured like the peace of a lamb or a sheep that's being well cared for. And so it seems to be contrasting the fate of Philistia with the fate of Judah. Judah, God's people, even though they would seem vulnerable probably to the Philistines, they would graze and they would lie down in safety. God would provide for them and protect them. They would be just fine. On the other hand, God would kill the root of Philistia with famine and slay its remnant. God would completely wipe the Philistines off the face of the earth. Let's read on a little bit further into verse 31. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. So this concludes the contrast here. While God's people will be rested and full, they'll be able to sleep well at night in safety in God's care, Philistines are going to be wiped from the face of the earth, The gates of their cities would not hold. If if your city gate was broken through, all of your security was compromised and you couldn't defend yourself. The city would fall if the gate fell. So it says, wail, O gates, melt in fear. They would look to the north and they would see smoke and that smoke would represent to them a coming army, most likely the Assyrians. It would be the dust from their warriors and and their, their warriors coming. It would be the smoke from the cities that they had destroyed on their way to destroy Philistia. And they would know that they were doomed. And so Isaiah brings this oracle from God. And it all comes together in verse 32. I'm going to get ahead of myself. Our final verse, verse 32, brings it all together. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. So verse 32, I think, clears up what in the world is going on. Why is Isaiah prophesying against Philistia at this time? It seems to be, and the historians that I consulted and the commentaries I studied this week seem to agree, that probably what's going on here is that Philistia is looking on the political situation in their area, King Ahaz had formed an alliance with the king of Assyria. Philistia was left out of that alliance, and they were super vulnerable in this growing powerhouse of Assyria. Now that King Ahaz died and a new king was on the throne, Hezekiah, who was not favorable to this alliance with Assyria, Philistia probably was thinking, well, we will go immediately. We'll send messengers immediately to Judah and form an alliance with them, and then we'll start to gain a united front against Assyria. 
And Isaiah is saying, no, why would we ally ourselves with you who are doomed, who are trusting in your false gods, who, who stand no chance against the judgment of God? Because we've seen that Assyria is just God's paddle. He's just the, the tool that God is using to discipline his people and to punish those who reject him. So Isaiah's message from God is basically, we don't need you. Philistia, we don't need to ally ourselves with you or your gods. We have the one true God. We have a refuge. The Lord has founded Zion, which is like the heartland of, of God's people in their promised land. And in her, the afflicted of his people find refuge. Philistia, the Philistine messengers, we are going to be just fine. We're going to be like little lambs grazing in a pasture. Our good shepherd's going to provide for us what we need. We're going to sleep soundly at night. Our good shepherd's going to protect us. Our gate is indestructible. We are unafraid. His message, as he's delivering it to these messengers of Philistia, is also for all of Judah in its hearing and then recorded in this book of his oracles. For, the, for God's people to always remember, we do not need to be afraid. We trust in the one true God. We fear the Lord. We don't fear any other threats. And we certainly don't go and make alliances with false gods to hedge our bets. There is only one true God. And in him we have refuge. And here we are, thousands of years later, through Jesus Christ, we are given the amazing gift of being grafted into God's people and we stand here receiving the same message. We're not under threat from Philistines, but the message is the same. Don't be afraid. Trust in the Lord. You don't need to fear any threat or danger. So what are we to make of all this practically? I just have three closing applications that are a little more practical than, than they are historical. First, just remember in Christ, if you're one who is trusting and following Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're a Christian, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. You are a citizen of God's kingdom. Do you think of yourself in that way? Is that how you understand yourself and your position and, and reality? It's hard for us because we, as modern American Christians, we are soaked in individualism. We can't even hardly think in any kind of collective terms. We're just autonomous individuals cocooned in, in our, our customized world. We listen to our own customized music. We watch our own customized algorithm-fed entertainment. But it's helpful to read God's Word and remember that we're not just individuals making our way through reality by ourselves. We have been gathered in, pardoned by the one true king, and granted citizenship into the kingdom of God. So as Christians, we're citizens of his kingdom, his nation. I'm going to read to you just a couple of passages from the New Testament to base this in the authority of God's word and not my own ideas. This won't be projected either, but these are short. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. That's actually not all that short, but y'all can handle it. 
It says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, non-Jewish people, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's, that was our situation prior to what Christ did on the cross. We were like nomads out there. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about between the Jews and Gentiles. Jesus welcoming in Gentiles, grafted in Gentiles like us fully into his people. Now he goes on talking about the the Jewish-Gentile friction and how that's been united in Christ. Let's pick back up here in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens or foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. As Christians, we're part, we're citizens of God's kingdom, and that's a real citizenship. I know it seems so spiritual, and um, it, it seems so intangible. When you compare it to our American citizenship, like we don't have a, a document, we don't have anything that we can see like we can, our earthly citizenships in the nation of this world, But when Jesus returns, we will see that our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is actually more real than any earthly citizenship and more eternal than any earthly citizenship. I'm going to read one more passage. This one genuinely is short. This is Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So when you become a Christian, yes, your sins are forgiven, and yes, you are reconciled to God, but not just a a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the phrase we tend to use as American Christians. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's not just a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's also this full citizenship transfer from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. See, when King Jesus returns, it'll become evident that while we down here, we thought that there were many different nations, often in conflict, sometimes in alliances, we're all clamoring around. When King Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns, it'll become evident that there's actually only two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. And when he returns, the question won't be, well, are you an American or are you a Canadian or are you a Mexican or are you a Russian or are you a Ukrainian? The question will be, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ, or are you one of the domain of darkness? That will be the only question of national interest that matters when the king returns. So that's my first application. Just remember who you are as Christians. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. Based on that, my second point of application, as citizens of God's kingdom, don't be afraid. I can stand on the the many times we're commanded as God's people to not fear 
with God's authority of his word and just say, don't be afraid. That's just a blanket command in scripture. Don't be afraid of anything. King Jesus is completely victorious over everything that could in an eternal sense ever harm or touch us. His kingdom is called unshakable. We're told that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We are citizens of a victorious kingdom. Now, the king has not yet returned, and so there still be little skirmishes. He hasn't fully ousted the enemy from reality like he will in one day, but it is a defeated foe. Satan and his influence over this world, he's still writhing about and he's thrashing about, trying to cause whatever stings upon us that he can, but he too knows that he's on his way to oblivion. And when Jesus returns, he'll make that victory fully, finally complete. But we're citizens of the victorious kingdom. And so we just don't need to be afraid of anything. We don't have to feel that, that the kingdom is ever under threat. There is no viable, credible threat to the kingdom of God. This was brought home to me in a real practical way as a parent uh, recently, just through a podcast I was listening to, and they just made this simple point about Jesus' victory and how full and complete it is. And we as parents tend to toward fear. And some of you, have, you've raised your kids, and now you're watching grandkids or even great-grandkids, and you're looking at the culture, and you're seeing how antagonistic it seems to be becoming toward the kingdom of God, and we can start to feel threatened, and we can start to feel afraid, but we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid for our children. I know they're coming up with smartphones, and we don't, old guys like me and up don't fully understand what this is going to mean for them. Uh, Nobody really does, but we don't have to be afraid for them. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be cautious. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be vigilant. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to be wise in our decision-making. It doesn't mean that really anyone should probably ever be on social media. That'll be one of those, what does the Bible say about topics, maybe. But it does mean we don't have to operate from fear. We don't have to make decisions based on fear. In 1 John, it says, He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Like we're on the strong and winning side. So remember that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Don't be afraid. And then finally, when you are afraid, because we all know that we're not going to be able to perfectly obey that command to not be afraid. When you are afraid, turn toward God, not away from God. That is the, the basic decision that we face anytime we start to feel fear. Am I going to turn toward God or am I going to turn to something else to, for protection, for refuge? for peace, for security. Notice in that message, the oracle, Isaiah wasn't saying to the Philistines, we have founded Zion, we're going to be just fine, we're really strong, we're really smart, we've got this all figured out. His message was, the Lord has founded Zion. And we find refuge there because he founded it. He is our protector. So when fear comes, we don't need to first turn to Google, what do I do about whatever this is I'm afraid of. Maybe you can do that later, but not operating out of fear, operating out of faith. When the fear comes, we don't need to first turn to Facebook and rant about it. We don't need to first get our phones and lock down our children with parental controls, though that is going to be appropriate. 
but you don't do it out of fear. You do it out of faith. We don't first turn to boycotts when we see companies operating in a non-Christian manner, and, and we should not be surprised if companies operate in a non-Christian manner. They're not the church. They're not the kingdom of God. We're part of that. Now, there may be a place for some of these things, but we don't jump to that first as our solution. The first thing we do is turn to the Lord. We turn to God. We take refuge in God through faith. And here's where it just gets really simple in, in Sunday school. Like, how do you do that? You pray about it. I know that seems like such a pat answer, but what else do we have? What else do we need? Did you notice, you know, Tom and I didn't coordinate that he would lead us in the Lord's Prayer. Did you notice how kingdom-oriented the Lord's Prayer is? I grew up reciting the Lord's Prayer. I never even thought about how much, like, national, like, kingdom language is in there. I mean, that, that is political. It's the politics of God's kingdom. We are under the king. And so we go to him. Your kingdom come. We want that. To you be the kingdom and the power and the glory. We go to him, we remember what's true, and then we move forward in obedience based in faith, not in fear. Fear-based decisions are seldom good decisions. Becky read Matthew chapter 6, which is just such a, such a comforting passage for those of us who struggle with anxiety. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm sure many hands would dart up if I said, does anybody struggle with anxiety? That Matthew 6 passage is just so nice and peaceful. I mean, the message is basically, don't worry. <laughs> don't, what, what good has worrying ever done you anyway? Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. And then he says, don't even worry about your life. And then where does he land? Do you remember where he landed when Becky read that? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all this stuff will be added to you. Your king, he knows what you need. He's good. He's a good king. You've never had a perfect leader in this world. Your favorite president on that wall of presidents was still deeply imperfect and flawed. You still couldn't fully trust him, but you can fully trust this leader. You can fully trust your king to take care of you. Don't let fear drive you to make Ahaz-like decisions. Remember that verse? It said, in his time of distress, he became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. In our times of distress, let's become yet more faithful to him. Let the distresses, the fears, the threats in this world send us running to him. Let it only strengthen our bond with him. Let it make us only more faithful. Remember, you're a citizen of God's kingdom. If you're in Christ, you're a citizen of his kingdom. Don't be afraid. And when you are afraid, go toward God, not away from him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for preserving this ancient oracle it's so, it was so long ago, but it stands as such a sure and solid word for us today. Lord, please help us to live in light of it. Help us to just incorporate it into our understanding of reality, of who you are, who we are. Help us to live this week out of that identity as citizens of your kingdom. And let it empower us to not be afraid. And when fear comes calling, let us immediately turn toward you and never away from you. In Jesus' name, amen.